0: Welcome to Passing Judgment, a podcast about politics, the law, and a lot of things in between. I'm your host, Loyola Law School professor Jessica Levinson, and today we're joined by Michael Macanoni. He's a legal affairs reporter for CQ and Roll Call, and we're going to talk to him about two huge Supreme Court cases that were heard just this last week they could upend our legal framework for when technology companies are liable for third-party content that's posted on their websites. This may not sound like a big deal, but it is actually huge in the sense that For over a quarter century, which is about 3,000 years in internet years, we've lived under a legal framework where it's really hard to impose liability on social media companies for things that other users post. So if you want to say something defamatory about me on Facebook, I can sue you, but I can't sue Facebook. That's the takeaway. So Michael, these are two pretty complicated cases. I'm so glad that you're here to talk about them with us.
1: Hi, Jessica. Thank you for having me on. And I am eager to wade into kind of a mess of these cases and a bit of a messy oral argument.
0: It is a total mess, but I think that's why it's fun, because there are so many big issues to talk about. And there were certainly lighthearted moments in the oral arguments. So I think let's do our listeners a favor and Lay out the cases briefly. The first case, which was argued on a separate day, the first case was brought by a family whose loved one was killed in an ISIS attack in 2015 in Paris. They sued Google, because Google owns YouTube, for recommending certain videos. And what they said is because YouTube's algorithms recommend certain videos, that actually makes ISIS's recruitment process easier. Now, they're trying to say that YouTube is liable under this mid-90s federal communications law, and specifically Section 230 of that law, which, as I said before, generally immunizes social media companies from liability based on content on their sites. Michael, I think I laid that out, but can you tell us a little bit more about the facts of the case and what the family was arguing here?
1: Yeah. So the family was arguing that uh, because YouTube had these recommendations for you know the next video to watch, trending videos in certain categories, those recommendations helped to radicalize people and recruit them into ISIS, which then contributed to the attack was what they laid out in their complaint. That was shot down at the trial level at the Ninth Circuit as, you know, you can't sue YouTube for that. That falls under Section 230. And their argument at the Supreme Court, the family of the victim, was that when YouTube took the step of not just hosting the videos on their platforms, but structuring these recommendations, that's when it stepped outside of 230. And the protections that the Uh, law offers to these platforms for publishing this third-party content. And that very quickly got into really complicated questions about what it means to publish something and what a recommendation is, what the structure of the internet is in the modern era, whether something written in the mid-90s internet could possibly cover what the internet is today as well as you know whether or not the supreme court is the right place to decide all of these issues
0: right and michael just so it's clear for the listeners we keep saying section 230 that's part of the federal law passed back in i think 1996 and that was an era when you know what were we worried about we were worried about chat rooms we never could have envisioned facebook and twitter and youtube and these algorithms and It basically said, social media companies, or at that point, tech giants, we want you to flourish. How important was that law for the development of big technology companies?
1: So Google, Twitter, Facebook, all of these companies have made arguments that that provision of the law was key to them being able to develop these products because they could not only create these platforms, but then market them to advertisers, with the idea being that those advertisers would be able to target their advertising towards people that were interested in particular subject matter, particular creators, particular topics. And that is all built on top of algorithms. And those companies felt confident, felt comfortable, in creating those algorithms because of the protections of Section 230, that they felt confident that they could build these platforms and use these algorithms on those platforms because the manipulation of the content, the third-party content, was protected under the law.
0: So, Michael, I know there's been some push, basically across the board, as I can see it, across the ideological spectrum, to maybe revisit 230 because it might feel to people like, again, it was written in ancient times when you think about how much technology has changed. And we know that with changing behavior, sometimes the law needs to react to that. Justice Clarence Thomas has written about his desire to revisit 230. But Do you think that's what happened in terms of why the court decided to take the case? We know it only takes four votes for the court to decide to accept a case, obviously five votes to get a majority in an opinion. Do you think that maybe they wanted to revisit? And then when they got to oral arguments, once they'd seen the briefs, it seemed to me like they really pulled back on that.
1: Uh, Yeah, it was really striking in oral arguments, how quickly and how almost uniformly among the justices, there was a reluctance to really dig in on 230 and muck about in the weeds of it to talk about how they might write a ruling that revisits it. There was a lot of questions about the unintended consequences of siding with the family of the ISIS terror attack victim. And even among justices who are amenable to revisiting Section 230. You you mentioned Justice Thomas. During oral arguments, he was questioning whether the YouTube algorithm could be considered a recommendation when it was treating ISIS content the same as any other content on the platform. So that was really striking in terms of the oral argument. And also in the broader debate about Section 230, there is bipartisan agreement across. Congress, across the executive to do something about the law. Getting down to the specifics of exactly what they want to do and exactly how they're going to write it has been another story.
0: And that's a great point. And and now I want to go back to basically where you finished your first answer, where you said, you know, they were having trouble. And I agree. I listened to the oral arguments. They were having trouble deciding what publishing was. And there were a lot of places where the theme that I kept hearing was, I'm confused. And Michael, you and I talked about this for a second before we started recording. But for me, the big takeaway was Justice Elena Kagan saying some version of, hey, look, you're not looking here at the nine greatest experts on the internet, meaning the justices aren't maybe particularly well-suited to make these determinations. The first question I want to ask you is, Can you try and help us make sense of this with the bookstore example that they kept using? And it seemed to me that they were trying to make a distinction between I walk into a bookstore, you walk into a bookstore, and I say to the bookstore owner, hey, do you have this book? And she says, yes, I do. It's over there versus I say, hey, do you have this book? And she says, yes, I do. And if you're interested in that, you might also be interested in this list that I created and you can find the books on the list right over there. Is that kind of what they were getting at?
1: It was what they were getting at. And there was also, a, a, because it's the Supreme Court and they are replete with hypotheticals, there was another sub-question there about if the bookstore creates a catalog of books that they have in stock. Could they have liability for having a defamatory book listed in that catalog? Just to give a, a little window into how complicated these arguments can get sometimes, that they were really trying to figure out a good analog to the problems that they're facing here about who can face liability when. And they really were struggling because it seemed like they were not exactly satisfied that there was a one to one analog that they could see imposing liability, or, or at the very least, they didn't seem satisfied uh, with some of the answers that they got about those analogs.
0: And this brings me to the next thing I want to talk to you about, which it did seem for about three hours that they were kind of grasping in the dark for how can we think about this in a way that makes sense to us? And I don't mean that in a pejorative way, but... They aren't the nine greatest experts on the internet in our country. And they were, I think, trying to figure out how do we fit this into our current rubric. But what kept coming back to me and what I thought about before the arguments even took place is why is the court having this discussion? And it's because Congress hasn't done anything. Now, could you talk to us a little bit about why Congress could do something and why it seems like they haven't and maybe won't.
1: Yeah, so there has, for at least as long as I have been in DC, some sort of discussion about reining in the tech giants or changing the internet. And there are a number of proposals out there. There's been one law that was passed that did alter Section 230 that created an exception for content that could be tied to sexual exploitation. So that did pass. Congress can legislate in some fashion on Section 230, but broader legislation that would get at some of these nuances about hate speech, about inciting violence online, about censorship has sort of eluded Congress. And, you know, there's been legislation that's been introduced that would require uh, transparency in blocking or censoring decisions that would require platforms to disclose details about their algorithm. But so far, these efforts have sort of died down each Congress along partisan lines that conservatives are generally very concerned about sort of alleged censorship by these private companies on conservative oriented views online and Democrats have raised concerns about vaccine and COVID nineteen misinformation, the spread of hate speech online, the spread of incitement of violence and radicalization online, that they really haven't been able to come together around an agreement on you know one set of language to pass.
0: And. That's how we get to the Supreme Court justices who obviously are unelected, and I think there are good reasons that they're unelected, and they don't have any particular expertise in this area. But it seems like that's how we get to them saying versions of, I'm confused. Can you walk me through this? Does this look like a book catalog? And at the end of it, when we're wrapping up our thoughts about this first case, it seemed to me that they just do not want to take this case any further, that for whatever reason, they will find a reason to say, this isn't the case that we're going to use to revisit our interpretation of the federal law. Was that also your takeaway?
1: I think it was notable that Justice Barrett in the first case, in the Google case, raised the possibility that they might be able to use the second case, the Twitter case, to sort of dispense with the issue entirely without having to deal with Section 230 at all.
0: So let's get to that second case, then. This is another case where the family of somebody who was killed in an ISIS attack abroad, in this case, attack in 2017 in Istanbul, sued a tech giant. In this case, they sued Twitter. As far as I understand, the suit is essentially based on the idea that Twitter should have done more to get certain content, certain content that could be characterized as supporting terrorism or off of their platform and that because they didn't do more that they're actually liable under a different law so we're no longer talking about the communications law now we're talking about an anti-terrorism law that they could be liable for aiding and abetting terrorists again for not doing more i don't think the allegation was that they helped specifically plan any terrorist attack but it was twitter you should have known better and by failing to take additional steps you basically facilitated ISIS to function better and therefore for this attack to eventually occur. Is that basically what was being argued here? Are there a few more facts that are helpful for our understanding?
1: Yeah, that I think got into a lot of discussion about the specifics of the law here and whether or not a generally available service like Twitter should be responsible for bad actors online and one example that came up repeatedly during the oral argument was do you think about twitter and you know the potential use of twitter analogous to a phone company or a pager company that somebody can pick up a payphone and organize a terror attack do you hold the payphone company liable or if a terrorist hires a taxi service on the way to, you know, to take a taxi cab on the way to a terror attack, does the taxi service then bear liability for the terror attack? There was a lot of concern raised by the justices of whether or not this case would open up liability for terror attacks more broadly than just on internet companies because of the way the family of the terror victim had positioned and pursued the case.
0: Could you talk to us about what you just brought up, which is Justice Barrett saying maybe we don't even need to get to the first case, that case we were talking about dealing with YouTube, because maybe we can dispose of the whole issue with the second case that we're discussing now, addressing Twitter and the separate federal statute. Could you just clarify for us, how does she think that the second case can answer the full question?
1: Yeah, so this is something that was brought up in briefing and also brought up by some of the experts who I talked to before the oral arguments here. Both of these cases, the Google and Twitter case, involve the same law that people or companies can be found responsible for the costs associated with a terror attack. Only the Google case involves Section 230. The idea here is the justices could decide that. The allegations in the Twitter case aren't enough under the law to merit a claim, i.e. they can't pursue the suit in the Twitter case, and then hold the same thing true in the Google case, and then decide that the Section 230 issue is moot. They don't need to reach it because the lawsuit doesn't need to be in court for other reasons.
0: So... Does it seem like the justices, based on oral arguments on the second day, did they seem more engaged in the second case? Did they seem more willing to maybe actually rule on the second case as opposed to what it seemed like in the case dealing with YouTube, really just kick the can down somebody else's road?
1: Yeah, well, they they didn't mention the possibility of Congress amending the Anti-Terrorism Act again in the second case. So at the very least, uh, they didn't mention the possibility of kicking the can to somebody else. Um, But they were asking very specific questions about where they should draw the line on finding that somebody should bear through money part of the responsibility for the harms caused by international terrorism. And they were asking very fine tuned questions about, okay, what does aiding or abetting a terror attack mean? This was a question from Justice Gorsuch What does a person who committed an international act of terror mean? You know, very fine tuned questions parsing the meaning of this legislation. Whereas in the Google case, there was a lot of broad conceptual hypotheticals about, you know, what would it mean if X, were to happen under the law.
0: And could this case against Twitter, even though the federal statute is at issue, does deal with anti-terrorism? Does it have broader implications? I know when I was listening, it was, as you said, it was a lot of what in fact is aiding and abetting. And Justice Thomas in particular seemed to have a lengthy discussion about would this qualify as aiding and abetting? Basically, what's over the line? And Is this case really just confined to this particular statute dealing with terrorism? Or does it also have the potential to open the floodgates to a new view of tech company liability?
1: I think that there was some discussion about a little bit broader tech company liability, although I think a lot of the justices' reticence that came out, or at the very least a lot of their questions, were about the floodgates that might open on businesses generally. But there was a lot of questions back and forth about where does a tech company have to draw the line? How much would they have to particularly pay attention to potentially objectionable content? You know, If they get a call from the chief of police in Istanbul that there is you know, particular posts or profiles that are involved in terrorist activities, if they don't take them down, do they then have liability? there was a lot of questions on when would a uh, social media company or an internet company in general have to act to avoid facing lawsuits as a result of a terror attack.
0: And when social media companies have to act, that brings us to the question that I think a lot of listeners might be asking, which is how does this affect me? So it seems to me that on that first case dealing with YouTube not much is going to happen because I just didn't count to five in terms of having, again, an appetite to say, let's revisit our interpretation of this communications law. But there was a lot more movement when it came to this anti-terrorism law and the Twitter suit. How do we think that if the plaintiffs were successful, how would that ruling affect people who use Twitter, who use Facebook, who use YouTube, what would change for them?
1: Well, I mean, I guess partially it would depend on how the five or more justices write the opinion uh, and and, how sweeping or how specific it is. But there were a lot of concerns raised. This might be a little bit more in the Google case that it would be, I think the quote from the attorney for Google was a Truman show versus a horror show. Yeah. that websites may take the sort of two very different pathways of either heavily censoring posts to the point that everything on their site is saccharine or censoring nothing and letting the internet run wild with all of its oddities and horrors.
0: Michael, against the backdrop of these. St- two big cases. And I agree, it totally depends on what's going to happen in the second case, who will win, how big or narrow the ruling will be, which, you know, is what it always depends on. There are other cases that are actually working their way up through the legal system. And there are two cases dealing with kind of the flip side of what we've been talking about, which is deplatforming people. And there's been a law in Texas and another law in Florida and I'm wondering if you've been following what's happening in those cases and, and what the issue is there.
1: Yeah. So uh, Section 230 in the Supreme Court is not going away anytime soon. So in those two cases that may get on the docket next term, there are two laws at issue, You know, Texas and Florida, springing out of you know, their conservative concerns that I mentioned earlier about censorship on online platforms. And these two cases that are currently pending at the Supreme Court, the justices recently asked the Solicitor General to you know, weigh in on these cases. In these cases, it's not just Section 230, but it's also First Amendment concerns that these websites are bringing up different legal issues about when they might be forced to host content under these laws that they would not like to. So... It could very well be that come next February, we're talking about another confused or messy or otherwise wide-ranging Supreme Court argument about the future of the internet.
0: I just feel like this is an issue where because of congressional inaction, because of changing technology, it's not going away. And I know to Justice Kagan's point, at a certain moment, the justices might have to be... The experts or become experts on the internet because if there's not a legislative fix something is going to have to happen from the judiciary and michael Macanoni from cq and roll call thank you so much for walking through these complicated cases with us
1: thank you thank you very much for having me on
0: so again we've been talking with michael mccanoni he's written a lot about these cases which i found really useful on roll call for all of our listeners. Thank you so much as always for rating, reviewing, subscribing, and we hope you enjoyed this conversation and we'll talk to you next time.